Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this month's Deep Dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a deep dive on GI bleeds. But before we begin, just a word from our sponsor at Pearson Rabbits Insurance, which is my own personal disability insurance agency. Pearson Rabbits helped me secure own occupation disability insurance. What this means is, if for any reason I am unable to perform my specific job as an ED physician, I will get paid a large chunk of my post-tax salary, even if I am still able to work as an educator or in a non-procedural setting. Keeping the details vague intentionally, one of my close friends who is a physician was recently injured and is currently out of work. This friend did not have disability insurance, and his reasoning was, I was otherwise young and healthy, why would I need disability insurance? Thankfully, he's doing okay and will return to work in a couple months, but this was a major scare for him, and he is in the process of obtaining disability insurance as we speak, although not at the low rates that can be guaranteed if you get this as a resident. Don't be like my friend and get protected before you get hurt. Check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule a free consultation appointment today. Now. Back to our episode. Let's talk GI bleeds, specifically upper GI bleeds. Now, I personally break these patients up into two different categories. You have your HPI patient and your ABC patient. And this is exactly what it sounds like. Your typical HPI patient will be a GI bleed that is hemodynamically stable and you have the time to perform a full history and physical on. Whereas your ABC patient is your GI bleed that needs resuscitation now. Let's start by talking about the history portion for our HPI patient. I take the time to ask questions here, and I always ask what color the blood is, meaning is it bright red, or is it kind of dark like coffee ground emesis, how much has come out, and if any blood clots have been passed. I also ask about risk factors for peptic ulcer disease and liver disease, that is, heavy NSAID usage, chronic steroid use, alcohol abuse, history of prior GI bleeds, history of liver disease, etc. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, is the history of anticoagulant or antiplatelet agents. And that's the history portion. Otherwise, the care of the HPI patient and the ABC patient is pretty similar. So let's talk about the ABC patient now. Assuming that the patient is not aspirating or altered and otherwise needing an immediate airway, I usually treat the ABC patient more like a CAB patient with circulation coming before airway. IV access is key here. You want two large bore IVs and what we mean by that generally is 18 gauge or larger in both arms. This is standard. But personally, I take this a step further if my patient is hypotensive or having a massive hemorrhage. If they are unstable, I will personally place at least one 14-gauge IV if my nurses are unable to do so. Just for comparison, while using a pressure bag, an 18-gauge IV can infuse about 200 cc's per minute, whereas a 14-gauge IV can infuse 450 cc's per minute. That's more than twice as much. And this is where I'm going to put my plug for ultrasound IV access skills. Now listen, I did a ton of these in residency, like 
probably over a thousand. They were the bane of my existence. And every time I got asked to do an ultrasound IV, I internally rolled my eyes and I audibly groaned. I know how it is. Their time sucks. No one wants to be doing them. And IV access is traditionally considered a nursing task. But hear me out here. As one of my favorite attendings in residency said to me, as an ER physician, you should be able to stick a rock with your eyes closed. IV access is a core skill and something that we should all excel at. And now, as a first-year attending, I cannot tell you how many times having this skill set has saved my butt. If you're still in residency, I would strongly recommend practicing your ultrasound IV access skills. Even if it slows you down, this is an invaluable skill that as an attending, I promise you is worth your time right now. And that being said, I'll get off my soapbox and we'll get back to the clinical content. So once we get access, if the patient is hypotensive, they're usually getting uncross-matched blood from me. Note that I do not make this decision lightly. It is very important to understand that patients are at higher risk for transfusion reactions when you are giving them uncross-matched blood. Now, you should still get a type and screen, because if this patient requires continued transfusions, then eventually you're going to be able to switch over to using typed blood instead of uncross-matched blood. I will often order two units of uncross-matched blood up front, and if they need more, I'm generally activating MTP at that point. In addition to the blood, there are other treatments that I will start ASAP up front. These include an IV proton pump inhibitor, such as pantoprazole, usually a 40 milligram bolus. And if the patient is on anticoagulation, I am usually reversing them if the bleeding is heavy or if they are unstable. But this is always a case-by-case decision. So I think something that is often overlooked in the ER when we're super busy is why is this patient anticoagulated? And that answer definitely influences my decision to reverse anticoagulation. For example, I would hesitate to reverse anticoagulation on a patient with a minor GI bleed who has an LVAD, but I would not hesitate at all for somebody who was having a major GI bleed and was on Eliquis for a history of a DVT six months ago. And then your final treatments depend on whether or not your patient has liver disease. If they have liver disease, even without a confirmed history of esophageal varices, I'm also giving them octreotide as a 50 microgram bolus followed by an infusion, as well as ceftriaxone as a single one gram push dose. Out of everything that we do for GI bleeds in cirrhotic patients, antibiotics seem to have the most effect on clinical outcomes, so do not forget the ceftriaxone. There is one point from the last episode that is important and I want to rehash. Many people with cirrhosis will have evidence of liver synthetic dysfunction by having an elevated INR but not being on anticoagulation. And again, this is because when the liver isn't doing its job as a synthesizer of these coagulation factors, we see this with a elevated INR. The problem is the liver also produces endogenous anticoagulant factors, which is not taken into account with this INR test. So we only see one side of the picture with the INR. The fact of the matter is that most patients with cirrhosis If they have any abnormal bleeding tendencies, they tend to be hypercoagulable and not hypocoagulable. 
But again, really the only way to figure this out is with a tag study, and this is outside the scope of the ED, outside the scope of this episode, outside of the scope of my brain. So we're not going to be talking about that today. Now, as far as imaging goes in these patients, I usually don't get imaging in my upper GI bleed patients unless they're complaining of severe abdominal pain. And then sometimes I will get an upright chest x-ray just to ensure there isn't any free air from a perforated peptic ulcer. If there's any concern for a lower GI bleed or something crazy like an aortoenteric fistula, then a CTA would be your study of choice. But for upper GI bleeds, we're usually not doing these. And lastly, you got to talk to GI. Now, personally, where I work, I usually only call GI from the ER if the patient is unstable or if I suspect variceal bleeding. Otherwise, it is rare that these stable upper GI bleed patients need emergent intervention, and I'll let the hospitalist put in a routine consult order. Again, this is just how we do it at my community hospital. Obviously, the culture is different from hospital to hospital, so your experience here may vary, but in general, getting GI on board is not a bad idea. So let's summarize. In summary, as long as the patient does not need an emergent airway, focus on the C of your ABCs and get good access up front and give uncrossed matched blood early if needed to get ahead of the bleed. Reverse anticoagulation if you think the benefits outweigh the risks. Always give pantoprazole and don't forget about octreotide and ceftriaxone if they have a history of liver disease. Always consider whether or not you need imaging, such as an upright chest x-ray to look for signs of free air, or if you're suspecting a lower GI bleed, you might need a CT angiogram of the abdomen and pelvis. And that's really all I have for you guys today. Short, sweet, and to the point. Send me emails, mike at emclerkship.com, with any feedback or any questions you may have. I do have to say that we have gotten a lot of emails with ideas for potential cases, and I want you guys to keep sending them. There's a couple that have been fantastic and that we are definitely going to be using. Maddie, I feel so sorry for you right now because these are some of these are just, they're, they're so good. They're so good. I, I am just glad I'm not in Maddie's shoes right now. So until next month's case, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.